Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Who here uh, eats with their right hand, like uses a fork, utensil, right hand? Okay, well, any lefties? Any lefties in the room? No? Okay, wow, that's crazy. So I'm, I'm a bit of a misnomer. Um, I eat nor- normally with my right hand, and, but I, sports-wise, I'm like kind of weird. I, I shoot left-handed, but I throw baseball right-handed. I golf right-handed. And so it's kind of weird because whenever I play pretty much any sport, uh, I feel like I'm constantly watching different people and how they throw. But basically, if you think about it like this, whenever you're right-handed and you eat, you don't even think about the fact that like, you are so trained to, to eat right-handed, you don't even think about it. And so if like, you were to go home tonight and you were to have a meal, and I just said, hey, you know what, for fun, let's just for fun, just have spaghetti, okay, tons of sauce, only use your left hand, no fork, or no knives, no spoons with the other hand, just left hand, it would probably take you twice as long to eat your meal, and you may have several stains on your shirt. And but it's funny because when we think about eating, we don't even think about, we don't even think about the fact that we like, have this muscle memory that's ingrained in us. But I don't know if you've ever played sports where you've like broken an arm or maybe a skiing accident or you're just clumsy, I don't know, you fell on the stairs and you break your, your, your leg or your arm or whatever and, and you're forced to have to do things with your other hand. I can remember in high school, we would, this is terrible, I mean this is high school me, okay? But uh, we would like make fun of kids who like, you know, they're right handed, they break their arm and then they have to like, we'd make fun of their handwriting and their tests because it looked like a, four, like a four-year-old did it. But to be honest, if we all tried to like, write our name or whatever, a prompt on a test with our left hand, it'd be terrible. And I think about that and that idea that we never think about the fact that we have this, this kind of just instinct in us that we've, that, that's, that we've, we've kind of created through pattern and rhythm. Um, when I watch our little baby, Junia, she's just turned one um, uh, yesterday, which is great. Yes, yes, she did it. We did it. Uh, but we do this thing called baby led weaning where she just, she, whenever she was young, she just got to start kind of eating when we were eating in little chunks. And she got so good at her little pincer grab, she could just like grab anything and put it in her mouth. But uh, it's funny because I, I, there's only a matter of time where I try to like, give her a spoon or a fork. And you can tell like even then, she's already kind of learning to be more dominant with one hand than the other. We don't even really think about it. We just we kind of start to live life and then we become accustomed to that. And so today we're going to talk about a passage in Matthew that, that Nick read. And I want you to think about this analogy as I kind of talk about it. Because what is happening here is... Jesus is giving this beautiful sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is like our third week in it, I believe. We're going to be in it for like the next 15 weeks. So summer is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And what he's doing is Jesus is essentially creating this beautiful depiction of what we call the upside-down kingdom. And it's this idea that the world that we live in is a kingdom, and Jesus brings his own kingdom and reign on earth as uh, as it is in heaven here now, and he gives us this beautiful understanding of the kingdom. And two weeks ago... What he did was that when he started, he was telling some disciples and a bunch of people were listening on this hill, hundreds of people, and we're talking about the most ragtag, uh, culturally um, low, least influential people you can think of, right? So essentially, if I want to go gra- gather a crew that replicated who Jesus was talking to, I would probably go to the hospitals, the halfway houses, uh, the, the shelters, the AA meetings, the, the streets, you name it. That's who I would gather, and that's who Jesus is essentially speaking to. And the first thing he does is he lets them know, here is who is blessed and welcomed in this kingdom. And it's not the people you think. It's not the people's status or money or pride or good looks. It's the people who, who are poor in spirit. It's the people who mourn. It's the people who thirst for the righteousness to be done in the world. 
And he creates this beautiful, beautiful understanding of those are the people God first wants in his kingdom. And it's, it doesn't have anything to do with what you do or what you don't do. It's, it's everything about who, who God is and what he wants in his kingdom. And so last week, we talked about this idea of the kingdom and the people that are a part of it are to be salt and light in the world. And salt is enhancing and it preserves decayingness in the world. And light is this just illumination in our lives. And uh, now we're getting to the point where Jesus is essentially going to talk about, if you, if you take out your Bible and you're not maybe super familiar with it, uh, about two-thirds of this is what we call the Old Testament, um, also kind of known as the Hebrew Bible. And two-thirds of this is, is speaking up to uh, Jesus the Messiah, who's to come to save the people of our sins, all people. And we typically read a lot on the back third, which is the New Testament, which is like the Christian Bible where we see Jesus. And the, and the red letters, if your Bible has red letters, the words of Jesus and what he's doing now in this moment, in this sermon, is essentially all two-thirds of the beginning of your Bible, he is going to show what he feels about it and what he thinks about it. And so this is an incredibly important passage because I don't know what circles you run in, but a lot of the, the non-Christians that, I, that I'm with, or whether they're agnostic or atheists, or even maybe just they were in church, now they're not, they have, or maybe they are in church and they just have a lot of hard questions, most of them are, are trying to reconcile a God who they see in the Old Testament. They see, well, there's a lot of like war and destruction and killing and rape and pillage and all these type of things, and they try to figure out where was God in that, and why didn't God do certain things, or, and maybe in their own life now, they, they feel the same way they've seen God in the Old Testament, and so a lot of times they just read the New Testament. You just read Jesus, you just read the red letters, and you feel good, and you're like, this is great, but Jesus, in, in these, these few verses, is going to do something that's incredibly provocative and profound, and it's not just provocative and profound to what would have been his original listeners when Matthew the letter, the gospel according to Matthew, was written because it was written to Jewish Christians or Jewish people who were deciding whether or not this Jesus guy was real. So in the, the first two-thirds of your Bible, makes up you know, most of it, was the Bible for the, Hebrew, or for the, um, the Jewish people. And, uh, and so there's you know, tons of different laws that were in there. There's prophets who had like, words from God. There's writings, and we, we read some psalms, which are these beautiful kind of almost poems slash songs that were written. And that was who they knew of God. And Jesus comes on the scene, and all of these Jewish people are listening to Matthew. And Matthew's writing this letter knowing that there's this tension between, is this God who we see and we know in this Old Testament, is he really who he is fulfilled in Jesus? And so today we're going we're gonna to talk about that. And um, to be honest, if you haven't read the Old Testament, let me, just, let me summarize it for you in like two sentences. The Old Testament is just showing how God created things good. Humans really screwed it up, continue to screw it up, and God decides, basically enough, I'm going to do something about it. He gives us several chances to do something about ourselves, and there's this pattern of the fact that we literally fall on our face within days or hours or just a few weeks, and it does not take long. If you leave us alone in a room, something bad will happen very quickly. It's like leaving my daughter in a room with, um, basically, I can put all the toys up on the shelves, but at the end of the day, she's going to find some random scrap under the couch that she's going to chew on and I don't even know how she found it. It's just, no matter what, she's going to chew on something bad, and I'm going to have to watch her. And so God's like, I'm tired of you chewing on the stuff on the floor. Just let me, I'll just do it for you. And so that's what the New Testament is about. That's what Jesus is coming to, to, to let them know. So verse 17, let's dive in. Um, we're not going to have it on the screen because I love for us to dig into our Bible. So if you brought a physical copy, great. We have some in the back. You're welcome to grab one. You can steal one. We promote that here. Um, you can also use your phone if you want, but we're going to be Matthew 5. Verse uh, 17, starting in 17, we're going to just be here uh, all day, just a few of these verses here. 
And uh, I want to read this first verse. We'll kind of jump in. So verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. Now, we think about abolish. Most times, I would say, if I say the word abolish, you would say slavery. It's like abolish slavery. That's kind of the language we use for abolish. It means to cease, to, to get rid of. Um, and, and so when Jesus is saying this, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, why is he saying that? It's almost like he's reading their minds. They're thinking, oh, Jesus is coming. He's going to get rid of all things, right? And in some ways, we think that because uh, Jesus is this, like, he's kind of a, a scary guy for, for the people who are in power at this time, for the Romans who are taking over the territory of Israel, for the Israel Jewish people who have followed this law. Jesus is coming on the scene, and he's, he's, he's introducing this upside-down kingdom, and it's throwing everything they knew in just a ruckus. And, and so I imagine that either he's, he has read, read their minds in different passages, but he's either knowing exactly what they're thinking or he's just reassuring them. He says, don't think that I've come here to throw everything away. Don't think that I've come to abolish it. The word, the word that he uses uh, is essentially, it means to, it's no longer valid to repeal or to annul, meaning he's not, he's not here to just get rid of it. So if you were excited and you're like, I could rip out the first two-thirds of my Bible because it doesn't matter anymore, that is not the case. <laughs> Uh, your Bible would be a lot thinner if we didn't have the Old Testament, but we have it because of, really a lot of, because of this passage. And we, he, he talks about, I have not come to abolish it, but I have come to fulfill it. Now, fulfilling what, he uses this phrase, the law or the prophets. Maybe you have a different translation, it might say something a little bit different, but the law or the prophets. Now, I'm going to give you a 20-second Bible lesson on the Old Testament. I said there's tons of books in the Old Testament that are all make up what is known as the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament, so if you went to the beginning of your Bible and you just went through the first five little mini books of the Old Testament, right, you would be have what's called the, uh, the Torah or the Pentateuch, which was essentially the story of creation, origins, all that kind of stuff. And then the Jewish people would follow the laws that were in there. There were 613 laws. Uh, it's called the mitzvot. Uh, and they all knew the, the laws. They followed them religiously. In fact, the Ten Commandments, if you've heard of those, those are 10 of the 613 and uh, they are following these up until Jesus' point. I mean, he's teaching these people who have been following these laws, who have been in trouble because they didn't follow the laws. And, uh, and, and it's funny because maybe you've heard people make fun of some of them. Like, oh, yeah, one of the Old Testament laws says that, you know, you can't eat bacon or, uh, or like, shellfish or whatever. You know, and, like, we don't have to do that anymore. Thank God I can eat bacon. And, but people make jokes about it. And you've maybe been like, confused, like, why, can't, why, did, why were they not able to eat bacon? Why can we now eat bacon? That's kind of weird. If it says we can't, why can we just all of a sudden now? So they're very confusing, some of them. They're, there's some that are civil, meaning they're like, if you punch someone, they get you know, your horse or punch you back or whatever. Or there's another one where they're more ceremonial, meaning like you have to do these things with this sacrifice to make yourself pure before God. Or there's other ones that are more just about the, the community of, of, of Israel that the laws were given to. So they're very kind of confusing, to be honest. You read them and you're like, these are just so weird. But at, at the end of the day, the point of the law is, was God's way of saying, hey, you've really screwed up. You've made things just... You run amok, right? And I'm going to give you these laws so that you're able to be right standing with me. And, and we don't, we don't like, like I said, I don't know about you, but, I mean, we eat bacon. I love bacon. Sarah was doing keto for a while. We ate a lot of bacon. <laughs> Praise God. Um, but, but you kind of start to think, okay, Jesus in this passage, he says he doesn't come to abolish it, but he's came to fulfill it. And so you start to think two, one of two things. You start to think, okay, does this mean, like I said, that we can just, we have freedom from the Old Testament, that uh, if I become a follower of Jesus, that I can just cut the, the Old Testament out and throw it away, or I can read the laws and be like, praise God, I can eat bacon now, I don't got to worry about it. Or, on the other hand, 
if he's came to fulfill it, then wouldn't that mean it's still there? Like if, I always think of Amazon, they use the word fulfilled a lot. I don't know, they fulfill your package order. The package is sitting on your porch, usually with a photo of where it is. It's not like they just took it and punted it and was like, fulfilled. They, they, they gave it the way it was supposed to be given, right? To you. And so Jesus fulfilling it, then hypothetically, shouldn't we keep following all of these laws? Am I not allowed to eat bacon? That's really what everyone wants to know. And, and so you kind of have these two different kind of polarizing sides. And to be honest, a lot of people today do take sides. Like, and, and to be honest, the answer is actually neither of those. Uh, like I said, you don't, don't cut out your Old Testament, but also don't think that all 613 laws must be followed. And we're going to get into why, and Jesus is going to actually explain it. So at the end of the day, when we get to this passage, we always forget that Jesus at this time is anywhere in his early mid-30s. So he's been on earth. He was born. We know he was born to Mary, and he lived a life. It's not like he just came out of the wilderness at 30, grown man. But he lived a life, and that means that his parents were Jewish, so he was a good-standing Jewish man. He wasn't like, ah, this is terrible. I'm not going to go to you know, Torah school. I'm not going to learn the laws. This is dumb. I'm just going to be rogue. No, Jesus follows the Old Testament. Like, he follows it to a T. In fact, he is showing us that all y'all couldn't do it, but I'm, I've done it, and I'm here to fulfill it. And so we have to realize that Jesus is not this like, rogue guy who's like, the Old Testament's dumb. And you start to think about it. If he did say that, he's telling God the Father, who is incredibly thorough in the Old Testament, that all his laws were dumb. And, and Jesus says later, me and the Father are one. We're one, in, one in, in God. And so Jesus would never say, yeah, everything the Father did was dumb. I'm here to make it right. Like, he would never do that. So Jesus, we have to know that was a, a, a loyal Jewish man in the life that he lived. And so when he's coming to give this teaching about fulfilling the law, he's not saying it's all dumb. He's not saying it's, not, it's unnecessary. He's actually pointing to something much deeper. In fact, this is a fun fact. We've only read five pages of Matthew. We've been going through it for a few weeks. We're probably going to go through it forever. And, uh, and we're five, about five, four or five pages in, depending on how big your Bible is, I guess. But he's already mentioned, Matthew, the author, has already mentioned fulfill seven times. That's a lot, actually. He's, he's, Matthew is just obsessed with revealing to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the laws, the prophetic words, and the writings, that Old Testament that we see. And at some point, it almost becomes like, ridiculous. You're like, okay, I get it. He's pulling from all these prophets. Look, they said this, they said that. And all the listeners, the Jewish people would know all this. They have all this memorized. They would know, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, and they're trying to debate, is this what it really means? Is Jesus really the Messiah that we've been waiting for? So he, he's been building this, this idea, Matthew is, and so he's very concerned with us knowing that Jesus is fulfilling this, and this is why this passage is so important. But if we look, it, it says he's not just fulfilling the law. The law is, you know, the 613 laws, the first five books. He's fulfilling also the prophets, meaning that everything that has been prophesied, that has been foretold, that has been told, that these people are waiting for, is coming to fruition. And that's really important because when you read this Old Testament and you read maybe Isaiah prophet or you read uh, Ezekiel or maybe you read, um, you know, like a, a minor prophet, like a smaller chunk, you start to read this and you're like, this is crazy. Is this, any of this actually happen? And then Matthew's like, let me quote that, let me quote this, let me quote this. He's just constantly pulling all these things and saying, look, it's exactly as it said it would be. In fact, uh, we know that this, yeah, he's fulfilling all this because actually later in Matthew, when John the Baptist, who was kind of the front runner of Jesus, the, the, the first guy, he was like the hype man, if you will, he, uh, he, Jesus says that, that all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, meaning now it has come to fruition and to an end, and I am to fulfill that. 
Um, the best way to describe it is uh, one, one smart Bible scholar says that, um, that we don't want to set aside the law and the prophets, but Jesus' role is to bring into being that to which they have pointed forward. All of the Old Testament is, is crying Jesus, and he's here to fulfill all of that. And so that's kind of why the idea is this, is this is a new era of fulfillment. It's something they've never seen. And so for the next six weeks, I'd love for you to stick around. We actually have uh, Adam's teaching, one of them, Justin, Jerry, a bunch of different people are going to get to teach, which is cool. Uh, and, and Jesus is going to give us six practical instances of what it means for this era of fulfillment. And they're really practical, murder, anger, adultery, sexual desire, divorce, swearing, oaths, retribution, revenge, loving people well. So if you're bad at any of those, there you go. We're going to talk about them. Uh, but he, he, this is his, his kind of start of those six, is he's going to say this is the baseline. Now, at the end of the day, you're like, okay, get to where this affects me, Trey. This feels very far off. At the end of the day, what Jesus is doing and, and what he's saying by saying he's fulfilled the law is he's actually calling his followers to something much deeper and harder. And I want you to be stressed for about five minutes, and then I'll, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll put on what he's really saying, and it feels better. But right now, what he's saying is, the laws that you couldn't do, I'm actually going to make harder. And it sounds weird. He's not adding more laws. He's not negating, he's not negating them in, in terms of the, the overall reason for the law, but he's actually taking the root of the law, and he's saying, this is the priority you need to make this more evident in your heart. Because you can do things with your hands and still be far from it in your heart. Changing your heart is way harder. In fact, the best example I can think of is whenever you're, maybe you're a kid or maybe as an adult you still have this problem, but you make a mistake with someone, you wrong someone, and your mom or dad's like, hey, go tell, go tell your brother or your friend or whatever that you're sorry. And you go up to him and you're like, I'm sorry. And you walk away. And then they, they look at you and you're like, and you have to go back and you'd be like, I'm sorry that I took your toy. And you have to like, feel it, you know? They want you to feel it. They want it to go into your core, into your gut, into your heart, into your soul, and they want you to feel the weight of what you did, and they want that to be expressed, because the words mean nothing, and everyone knows if, you, if you're married, or you, maybe you have a really close friend who you've wronged, and they just give you the, I'm sorry, whatever. Yeah, you're like, that doesn't count at all. The words mean nothing. This is what Jesus is getting at. The laws were, were pointing to a much deeper symptom of humanity, and the humans, what we do is we try to get off as easy as we can. We try to play the most comfortable route. And so we take what God gives us and we're like, all right, let's get the bare minimum that we can. And that's what they were doing. They were following the laws, but they were being meticulous about them, and they were still terrible people. Their hearts were not being transformed. They were, they were doing whatever they could to, to just kind of do their own thing without feeling guilty about it. And so Jesus is coming, and he's saying, hey, all those things, actually, I'm going to drop much deeper. And that's what he's doing. Now, like I said, that's much harder, but don't worry because Jesus is not concerned with making it harder and then leaving us there. He's actually concerned with not only making it um, more of a heart issue, but he is actually going to do it and help us in it. Meaning, and I've used this phrase before, that he's here to renovate your heart. That he's not here, if you think of your heart as a house, you know, maybe you bought a fixer-upper, right? All the rooms are just rough, and you got wood paneling everywhere, and you're like, what do I do with this? I can't paint over it. It'll still look bad. Jesus is like, I'm going to take that off, and I'm going to put some shiplap up there, you know? Or maybe that's out of date. I don't know. It was five years ago. That was Chip and Jenna. That's all they did was shiplap. But uh, what was it called? Batten board or whatever? Maybe that's in style. Yeah, yeah, batten board or whatever. But Jesus is coming into every room in your, every room in your house, and he's tearing it up, and he's renovating. He's making it better. But the problem is you have several rooms that you're not letting him in, and they're a mess. And you don't want him to see it, and you don't want other people to see it. And so what you do is you act like they're not there, and you show everyone your good rooms. But in reality, you have all these terrible rooms that are going to cause decay and mold and problems that's going to affect your entire house. 
at the end of the day, if you have a leak in one room, your whole house is problematic. And Jesus is here to say, I'm here to renovate every single room in your house. I'm not here to just look at your house and say, wow, what a pretty house from the outside. That looks great. Because when you get inside, reality is you got leaks everywhere, you got mildew, and you got mold, and it makes the whole house just dangerous. And so that's why in verse 18 through 20, this is kind of confusing. We read this, it's, it's a little bit confusing because he just said, I have not come to abolish, I've come to fulfill. And he says, I tell you the truth in, t- in verse 18. Until heaven and earth pass away, meaning like, this is, this is like a modern way of saying until hell freezes over. It's like, it's never gonna happen. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke uh, of a letter will pass from the law until everything takes place. So notice earlier it was the law and the prophets. Now Jesus is focusing just on the law because to be honest, that was what they were hyper-focused on trying to validate their hearts in was the law. And he says, if you have the King James, which is a very old translation, they use the phrase jot and tittle. So if you're ever just like wanting to try to be confused by the Bible, the King James uses the word jot, the phrase jot and tittle, which I guess means stroker of the letter. But the nerd uh, in me, you know, the Bible scholar in me, uh, in, in the Hebrew, there was essentially words that would require just the smallest little serif or a little piece on the word that would change the entire meaning of the word. So Jesus is like, the smallest mark on the law is important. Not just the words, not just the sentences. Every single piece of it is so important. And why? Because Jesus is one with the Father, and the Father doesn't make mistakes. So he's not here just being like, I'm just going to create some laws that I think are cool. He, no, they, they're purposeful and they have value. And you're saying, Trey, I still don't know why they couldn't eat bacon. I'll get to that, okay? But, but he's saying, look, all of these have value. They're not going to go away. And what he means is not that the laws are still here, we still can't eat bacon, but that, that the law's value was pointing to someone who would show us how to be human, and he would do it. And not only would he do it, but he would, he would forgive us for not doing it. That's the beauty of Jesus. Not only is he showing us how to be human, he, he's showing us how hard it is. We fail, and then he also he takes the, 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 the tension and the sin and the brokenness from us not being human, uh, in that as well. It's like, it's almost like you owe a huge amount of money to God. And, and it's, and if we just threw away the law, that would be like you sending a check to God that, you know, you owe him a certain amount of money and it's just written, it's just void. It's just void. He sends it back. It doesn't work. It bounces, whatever. Not only is Jesus, Jesus is not taking that check, that money that you owe. He's not taking that check and he's ripping it up and, and, and saying it's not, it doesn't matter anymore. In fact, the money that you owe is what you owe. The sin that we have that, that, that pushes us away from God and the righteousness of God has to be um, handled. And so Jesus, what he does is he rips up your check and he takes out his own check and he writes the exact amount that you owe and he, and he writes it in his name. And that's what the law, we have to get both pieces of those. The law is not us trying to continue just to write. Because Jesus is saying, yeah, you owe $1,000. Technically what he's saying here is you actually owe $10,000. And you're like, $1,000 is already enough. Now I owe $10,000? And he's like, yes, you do. The more that you understand the renovation in your house, it's a mess. You thought it wasn't that bad. It's really bad. We took the drywall off. And there's just rabbits living in your walls, and there's mildew, and it smells terrible. And it's way worse than you thought. And you're like, oh, no, now I never can pay. He's like, yes, that's the point. So we should feel nervous about this because, you know, so we want the Bible to feel good, make us feel good. And, and we, it sounds weird. We have to feel bad before we can feel good. Because we have to know that Jesus has come for a reason. He has not come to just be a nice guy and to make us feel good. He's come to take our damage and things that we cannot pay. And he, t- he rips up the check and he writes one himself. So when we get to um, the next verse, this is where he's getting at when he says, he says, look, everything will be perfect. The law will be, will be the way that it needs to be because my father doesn't make mistakes. 
And he says in verse 19, he says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments, the 613, and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is, is, is the, the, the followers of Jesus. It's this beautiful wave. If you ever watch Chronicles of Narnia, whenever when Aslan comes in, and we, people don't realize this if you watch the movie again, everywhere he goes, winter starts to melt. And it's melting all over, but anywhere he goes, it's immediately turning and melting. It's this idea of his kingdom coming rain on earth as it is in heaven. And, and so he's doing this in such a way that anything he touches just melts, right? It becomes human again. And he's saying, hey, if any of you break any of these laws, you'll be called least, meaning lowest in heaven, meaning that you're, you're, you're essentially freezing things again. You're causing fr- frozenness when I have, I have caused life. And he says, but whoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And, and the idea of break, you're, like I said, you're like, shoot, man, can I eat bacon or not? I want to know. And, and uh, the word breaks is actually kind of a hard word. We, don't, we, we interpret it a little bit different in the modern world. But the ESV version and the NIV says to relax or to set aside. Meaning if, if you set aside the laws that are given and you don't understand the, the intention behind them, then you will miss the point. And so he's not saying the, the, the exterior, external value of the laws. He's saying the internal heart issue of the laws. And so, that, so yes, you can't eat bacon because it's not about the external value of the law. It's about the internal root of what God is trying to do with his people. So at the end of the day, disciples, followers of Jesus, we should delight in and learn from every word that God has spoken and written in, in his word. And rather, we don't get to pick and choose. Now, that doesn't mean, that, like I said, you face value, follow it. You can't eat bacon. You've got to sacrifice some goat a certain time of year, which actually had to happen. But now we don't have to do that because... We see God's intent and heart in this. Jesus is echoing that value, but he's drawing us to something much deeper. And at the end of the day, uh, Jesus is calling us into something, though, that is hard on purpose. I said that, that you should feel a little bit nervous, and that we know that because he, he ends with this verse, verse 20. This is the last verse. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, being made right, following the law, goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I cannot imagine, that would be like you going to this conference and being like, hey, all, y'all want to win a million dollars? Or you want a million dollars? And everyone's like, yeah. And everyone that there is like has no money. And they're like, this is great. You're all going to get a million dollars. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to be in this. This is awesome. And then like 10 minutes in, like, oh, by the way, you have to give us a $200,000 cash deposit. And everybody's just like, uh. Because in the beginning, he was like, hey, bless all these people. Bless all you broken, culturally, whatever, unflinched people. You're all blessed. You're in the kingdom. And they're like, yes. And he's like, but if, uh, if none of you, if none of your righteousness, um, you know, is better than the guys whose job it is to be righteous and follow the laws, then you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's incredibly distur- uh, discouraging. Why is he doing this? Why is he like, hey, getting you all excited, and then, oh, wow. Like I said, you have to feel the weight of what he has come for. He's not here to play little games. He's here to renovate your entire house. The best way to put it, one, one uh, scholar wrote, those who are to belong to Jesus' new kingdom must move beyond the literal observance of rules, however good and scriptural, to a new conscious, uh, consciousness of what it means to please God, one which penetrates beneath the surface level of rules to be obeyed to a more radical openness to knowing and doing the underlying will of your Father in heaven from your heart. And so this is why it's so hard, because at the end of the day, when you go to a counselor, they don't, a good counselor is not going to ask you, tell me about all the things you're doing wrong. They're going to tell you, why are you doing all those things? And that's much harder because it's one thing to do bad things. It's another thing to, to, to open up your heart and, and realize the root of them. It's much harder. 
And that's why Jesus is saying this righteousness is so much harder because I'm not just asking you to do nice things and play nice. Anybody can be nice to people, but it's much harder to be nice and want to in your heart. And that's what the next six weeks are gonna be, the things that we do, but we really don't do in our heart. And this is why Jesus came. He came because we realize the standard. We realize that when it's not just about our body, our hands, the things that we do are external, which is what the world values, right? The world values what you do. They don't care about who you are what you do, what you can achieve, that we realize just how truly incapable we are. We get to the point where we're like, my gosh, I can't do it. And it's actually freeing. It's more freeing than people ever realize. And that's the point of the Old Testament is we see the sin and the ability to fail and fail. And God says, finally, I've had enough. I'm going to handle it. And that is why Jesus came. I want to read one last verse and give you kind of a story just to have you figure pack all this together. In Jeremiah 31, which is a prophet, and, and, and Matthew's hinting at here, Jeremiah 31, I'm going to read it, and this is very clearly him talking about Jesus hundreds of years before he came, and he says this, he says, indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new promise, a new deal with his people, because all the other covenants did not work, because they, we had to do things and we failed. With the people of Israel and Judah, the people, the Jewish people, it will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, for they violated the covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. Here we go, verse 34. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. What? Isn't that crazy? For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. And the last sentence is, for I will forgive their sin and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. Jesus is, is coming onto the scene. He's speaking to all these people. And he's saying, look, I don't got to compel anything from you. And I'm not here to tell you to do the laws and to be a better person and to try harder. I'm here to tell you, you failed, and that's okay. Because I didn't. And that is, like I said, Jesus is the, most, is the prototype of humanity. He is, he is human and who we should be in, human, in humanity form. And so the best way to describe this, I'm just going to close with this, is you know, uh, a lot of our uh, church guys play basketball, and Sarah actually plays basketball on Mondays uh, pretty religiously now, I mean, almost every Monday. And uh, one of the things, I grew up playing basketball, I was very tiny, actually, I was like five foot, so I was actually way different of a player than I am now, but... When you start to get good in basketball, and it's like this in any sport, I'm just using basketball as an illustration, it's even like this in drama and theater and music, is you learn, you learn the basics, but a lot of times people only are able to see what they see, right? So in basketball, when, you're, when I'm in middle school and you know, I loved, what do you want to do when you have practice? You want to scrimmage, you want to play full court, you want to play three and three, you want to shoot hoops, you want to play a game, right? That's what you're there for, you're there to play basketball. And then what do you do when you show up? They're like, all right, we're going to run suicides, and then we're going to... We're going um, to do this thing called, this is my most hated drill ever. It's called the shell drill. And what it was, if you ever had done the shell drill, you know, it's like playing basketball without the ball, and you can't shoot. All you can do is pass and move around. I mean, what is the point of that? Seriously. It's like, just get rid of the hoops and the lines. We'll just, like, throw the ball around for fun. I'm like, I'm not here to do that. And so we would do this. And the point of the shell drill was to eliminate the distraction of the external, the reality of I'm here to shoot hoops and score more points than the other team. That's the root of basketball in most sports. Throw the ball and wherever and make more points. But it was to pass the ball and to see the movement of people and how it affected the defense and how you could get open in other areas to receive the ball again. And so the shell drill, even though it was unbearable, at the root of it, when you play in the game, that becomes your instinct. That becomes your right hand when you eat 
and then you're having to figure out how to eat with your left hand when you break your right hand, that is what the shell drill is. The shell drill is building an instinct within you, a kingdom instinct that you don't even have to think about it. You just know where to go. You know how to get open. And what happens is when people watch you play, people don't realize this in sports. If you don't really play that sport, you say, wow, they're really good at that sport. And all you're seeing is them scoring points. You're thinking, they're great. They like have 25 points. They're so good at scoring. And it's like, honestly, if you really knew what they were doing, they're really good at getting open. They have a great, what we call, court sense. They know where to go, who to block, and where to go to get the ball where they need to to score. It's not, they might have a good shot, but a lot of times it's, they find a way to get open because they've done the shell drill for hours. And what Jesus is saying here is, he's basically saying, in, in this illustration is, you guys skipped the shell drill. You all got on the court, and you just kept trying to shoot hoops, and you're all terrible, and you're not working as a team. The church in the reality of the churches, we're all like doing this shell drill together. We sometimes get frustrated that we're doing it because we think we know best and we think we should do these things, but we're only gonna get good at the externals if we focus on the internal. And that's, why, that's what Jesus' whole mission is, is he's, he's pulling us deeper and he's pulling us to his heart. And over the next six weeks, that's what, that's what we're gonna see and that's what we're gonna learn. And, and so I just, I want us today, when you walk away, you know, and maybe you felt frustrated about the Old Testament or you've you know, you felt discouraged or you confused. I want you to feel confidence about what Jesus is saying about it. He's not throwing it away. He's not, making it, he's not making it more meticulous about rules and laws. He's calling us to something much deeper. And so I want to invite the band up. Um, they're going to play one more song. And we do this every week. We, we offer this response as a community. I actually forgot to grab one. But there is, um, there's juice and bread back there. You can go ahead and grab one. Um, and... What that is, is that's a reminder as a church to remind ourselves that we are not good enough, that our internal heart cannot be changed without Jesus and his sacrifice. And so the bread and the, the, uh, the juice is a reminder of his body and his blood that was broken for us. So thank you so much. So uh, we're going to give you like a minute or two, and there's three things you can do. You can take this uh, as you watch everyone, everyone else that's a follower of Jesus takes this because we all acknowledge we're broken together and we do it together. Uh, and you can take that, and then you can also just reflect on anything that's been said. And the last thing is we have people in the back who have, like, a lanyard on, and they would love to pray for you about anything. So you can do any of those things, and then whenever they're ready, they will start a song, and we can stand and uh, finish worshiping. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.